Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Have always thought how beautiful are the feet is a really weird thing to say. I don't understand it. I'm not here to explain it to you this morning, actually. We're just going to gloss over that and act like it's not there because I don't understand why their feet are beautiful. But I just want to reread the verse there. How beautiful are those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now, don't trip on the word preach, because this doesn't just mean preachers up here like what I'm doing now. Anybody who speaks the word of God, any situation you are in where you bring the love of God, the service of God, the word of God into your relationships, you are bringing the gospel. Hello? So notice here, the gospel is peaceful, it is glad tidings, it is good things or good ideas. The gospel is a good idea. And the fact that you believe it, the fact that you live it, the fact that you bring it out in your relationships by serving and loving other people, what you believe and what you do makes you beautiful. Right? When you bring the gospel to anybody in your family or somebody you meet on the street or any relationship where you forgive or love or bring encouragement or prophecy or anything that you do because of Jesus is bringing the gospel. And so that makes you beautiful. What you do and what you believe make you beautiful. You know, the Bible makes it very clear. God does not look on the outside. It is not our hair and face and clothes that make us beautiful. It is our heart. What we believe creates our actions, and our actions make us beautiful. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. God says, think on things that are good and true and noble and pure and lovely. Notice it has to have all of those qualifications, not just one or two of them. The things we are to believe, the things we are to pray, the things we are to think on, the gospel is not just true. It is true and lovely. It is noble and virtuous. Right? Something cannot be just true because if it's true, it will be lovely. If it's true, it will be noble. If it's true, it will be virtuous. That's the gospel is all of those things. Christianity, the truths of the Bible are true and they are noble and they are just and they are pure and they are lovely and so on. Truth is beautiful. For an idea to be true, it has to be noble and lovely and virtuous and praiseworthy. So when we love the truth, it makes us beautiful because the truth is beautiful. The truth is lovely. The truth is noble. Yes? Facts alone do not qualify as truth. Truth is fact combined with wisdom and beauty. That's what makes truth. A quote from a German philosopher named Carl Schmitt. He said, science alone is untrue because it aims exclusively at truth, divorced from the good and the beautiful. 
The scientific mind is far too simple. There are too many facts in too mysterious a relationship for his simple mind. In theory, he is right, but in practice, he can never get all the facts as long as he specializes exclusively in reason, because knowledge of its very nature excludes facts. The simplest way to restate that is that you know people who know all kinds of trivia, and they can win your trivial pursuit game. They can even win your Bible trivia game, but they may not really know it. Facts are not knowledge. Facts are not truth with a capital T. They are true, but truth includes more than facts. Truth must be noble and praiseworthy and beautiful, or it isn't true. Because the truth of the word of God makes the people who believe it beautiful. And you know that there are teachings out there done by Christians in certain denominations or just people who believe things that they claim are Christianity or that they're biblical, but they're ugly. They're not loving. They're not forgiving. They're not gracious. They're ugly, so it's not true. That's just one of the proofs that it's not true, is that it's not beautiful. Fact alone is not truth. Truth is facts combined with wisdom and beauty. Here's how I want to put it. Facts that are interpreted and applied with wisdom result in beautiful fruit. And that is truth. Facts that are interpreted and applied with wisdom result in beautiful fruit. You know people who can read the same Bible as you and they can take a scripture, but because something is ugly in their heart, they twist it and they say they're living for Jesus, but they're really being pretty nasty. And they've made it ugly. So even though it's, it's biblical, what they're doing with it isn't true. Am I being clear here on what I mean? When I say that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. The truth is beautiful. It makes us beautiful. Because it comes from God who is beautiful. Yeah. Proverbs 9.1 says, Wisdom has built her temple. She has carved out her seven pillars. What this verse means is not my point. I just want to draw this out. In, in Proverbs, wisdom is presented as a woman all through the book by Solomon, who wrote it. And this verse says she has built her temple or her house, and she has carved out her seven pillars. Now, in the ancient world, when they built a temple, the stone pillars were there to hold the roof up. So the pillars are speaking of the foundation of the structure of the house, what holds everything up. So the structure of wisdom is made of stone. And stone in scripture always speaks of God's law and his righteousness, his truth that will never, ever change. It is rock solid. God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone because it is not changeable. For all of eternity, you carve something in stone, it's not, it can't be rewritten. Wisdom's temple, wisdom's house is built of stone, but it is carved stone to make it beautiful. It isn't just stone cold facts. It is carved to make it beautiful. Wisdom is truth that has had art applied to it to make it beautiful. Wisdom is truth that has had art applied to it to make it beautiful. She carves her pillars. She doesn't just leave them as square Lego blocks of stone stacked up and they're plain and ugly. No, wisdom is beautiful. 
God's existence is not only a fact and not only is his word true, but every biblical description of him focuses on his beauty and his glory and that is inseparable from his holiness. His beauty and his glory are in these passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation are his beauty and his glory are the evidence of his power and his holiness. There's descriptions of his throne and the colors and the music and the fire and the light and the gemstones and a living river and a garden and stars. And it is impossible to miss the beauty in the descriptions of the presence of God. It is not a sideline. It's not an unimportant secondary report. In fact, to Isaiah and Ezekiel and John, they are overcome by the beauty and that is his power. His power is coming from the glory the light of his presence. Psalm 27, 4, David says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, The only thing I live for is to see the beauty of God. That's all I want. Psalm 96, 6 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Beauty, with a capital B, beauty as the definition of what beauty is, is the throne room of God. Whatever is there, it is beautiful. Nothing nothing ugly is going to be in the presence of God. Nothing even plain is going to be in the presence of God. It is the definition of beauty. And that beauty is supposed to be on us. Psalm 90, 17 says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. We're supposed to look like Jesus, you know that? Yeah? When people see and hear you, they ought to remark, oh, yeah, he, looks, he sounds a lot like Jesus. Come on, if you're God's child, there ought to be some family resemblance. Hello? You should be beautiful. Again, that has nothing to do with the outside. It has everything to do with your heart and your mouth. Psalm 29.2 says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Our worship is supposed to be beautiful. Our worship is attractive to God. When I use the word worship here, I don't mean songs. That includes it, but I just mean everything we do as a church in the service of God. Okay, of course it means our music, but it means the preaching we do, our prayers, all of the ministries we do to serve the Lord. Our worship is supposed to be beautiful. You can read Song of Solomon and you can see that Jesus is attracted to the beauty of his church like a man is attracted to the physical beauty of a woman. And that's not anything about sexual temptation because we're talking about beauty, not lust. Okay? We live in a world that just makes even that metaphor a dirty thing, but it's not. There's nothing, there's nothing dirty about it. God is beautiful, and his beauty is inseparable from his power. God's beauty is to be upon us, his children. We are supposed to have a family resemblance. Our worship is to be beautiful, because that's what makes it true. Our beautiful worship is attractive to God. Our ancient ancestors understood that beauty and truth are the same thing. And they understood that beauty and power are the same thing. Beauty is power. We all know that a beautiful woman is very powerful. She will elicit a response from the other women and from the men. Beauty is power. And a powerful God is beautiful. Beauty is healing. It's therapeutic. It really is. Beauty gives life. We need beauty in our lives to give us life. British author Roger Scruton says, Beauty matters. It is not just a subjective thing. 
but a universal need of human beings. If we ignore this need, we find ourselves in a spiritual desert. And he also writes, beauty is vanishing from our world because we live as though it did not matter. We live in a super ugly world. But God created us to need beauty, and ultimately that is his beauty. But we need beauty in our lives because it's healing, it's therapeutic, it's a refuge from a really ugly and dark world. So Dean Abbott writes, beauty reminds us that we are more than mere matter and that we long for meaning from outside ourselves, and that is why modernity hates it. The modern world hates beauty. Everything that the world insists on doing is dark and ugly. So anything that we do to create beauty is a revolution against the world. Anytime that we would create beauty, we are revolting against the world because we live in an ugly and dark world, but we need it. Beauty renews us. It gives us peace. It's a refuge. So I want you to remember back to a particularly beautiful moment in your life. Maybe it was a mountain you were standing on and you saw this particularly beautiful viewpoint or you saw snow falling in the dark when there wasn't any wind. That occasionally happens around here. <laughs> uh, that's, one of my, that's one of my favorite things in life is snow falling at night in, in light when there's no wind. It's just fantastic. Or maybe it's lying on the, your back looking up through the tree leaves at the sun and you're just looking at that dance of tree leaves and sunshine or maybe it's a dress or a flower garden or a cathedral that you've been in or a painting or a music moment that you had. Maybe your beauty is not visual, it's, it's music. Uh, a moment that you were particularly moved by some, some beautiful music that you heard. Or maybe you saw a herd of elk. There aren't many um, churches in the world where you'd have a significant number of guys that would probably say the most beautiful thing I've ever seen is a herd of elk. They are majestic. They really are. It's, well, it's wonderful. Whatever you have seen or done and encountered that, moved, that made you stop and watch and listen and take it in, okay? Remember how you felt. It refreshed you, did it not? It renewed you. All of your cares and stresses melted away. Just be it for five seconds or five minutes, you were safe in beauty. You were renewed. You were refreshed. You were healed by the viewpoint or the music or the lighting or the moment, whatever that was. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Beauty heals us. It's a refuge. Beauty is not the same thing as spectacle. Our world is good at putting on shows. You go to a concert and you get big screens and pyrotechnics and blasting music. Or you go to a pro sports event and it's, it's just all noise and action and loud music and jet flyovers and stuff. Or you go to action movie and that's not beauty. Those are assaults on our senses that produce excitement and adrenaline buzz and energy, but it isn't beauty. Do you come home turned on rather than at peace? Those things, just by brute force, they produce energy. They're assaulting our eyes and our ears. They're not beautiful. 
Beauty produces peace, but also desire at the same time. I don't know about you, but I can never get enough of it. I always want to go back. There's a place up at Ruckle Junction where you can see down on the Umatilla side of the mountains. That's just fantastic viewpoint. Rock Springs above the Minam River is just fantastic. I, I, I can't get enough of my favorite music. Um, it always moves me. Just yesterday I listened to a song I've probably heard a hundred times in my life and I was in tears because it moves me. I need it. Beauty produces peace, but also desire at the same time. It is calming, but it is also awe-inspiring. Sometimes even produces fear. So a beautiful God produces peace and desire in all who behold him. The beauty of his presence is calming, but it is also moving. It's awe-inspiring at the same time because beauty gives life. So our worship... Beautiful worship should be producing peace and desire at the same time. We should be fulfilled and thirsty at the same time every Sunday when we leave. That was so good. I needed that. I can't wait till next time. That's what I mean by it produces peace and desire. It produces fulfillment and hunger. Satisfaction and I want more. Beautiful worship should produce peace and desire. It should be calming and stirring at the same time. You've been deeply stirred, but deeply put at peace at the same time. Our forebears, both in ancient Israel and in church history, understood that our worship to God is to be beautiful and excellent extravagant and awe-inspiring in order that it be powerful and true. God demands that our worship be spirit-led and excellent. Therefore, it will be beautiful. Therefore, it will be powerful and true and full of life. Can I get an amen? Here's a passage from Exodus 28. Now, God is speaking to Moses. Now, take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that they may minister to me as priest. Here's God telling Moses, Aaron and his sons are going to be my priests, and I want you to pick the most skillful artists to make them holy clothes. And those holy clothes will consecrate them to be my priests. It says the clothes consecrate them. To be my priests and make them glorious and beautiful. God says, make the priest's clothes glorious and beautiful for glory and for beauty. He later on in this passage, God tells Moses to make Aaron a holy hat for glory and for beauty. It's really funny how it comes out translated in English, make him a holy hat. But he uses that phrase again for glory and for beauty. And the glorious, beautiful clothes make Aaron holy to come into my presence. That's pretty amazing. 
Nothing ugly or plain can come into the presence of God. Well, we have absolutely no idea what any of this looked like because they didn't draw it for us. We didn't have Google in those days to take uh, pictures. So the, the Sunday school pictures that you've seen of the priests wearing their robes and the breastplate with the stones on it and their poofy hat, that's just an artist's rendering. We really don't have any idea uh, what the priests in the Old Testament looked like. But this does look like what the Catholic bishops and the Pope and the cardinals wear. Very fancy robes and holy hats <laughs> that I was raised and told was all superfluous, extravagant, ungodly excess. God said to do it. Just throwing that out there. I'll just keep moving right along. In Exodus 35, 30 to 35, says, Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has... Can you imagine me in a frock and collar? Uh-uh. Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge. This guy is a genius. This guy is full of the Holy Spirit of God when no one else is except for Moses. And how does that manifest in his life? He's a brilliant artist, and he makes beautiful things. Come on. And God says, put him in charge of making the Ark of the Covenant and all the furniture and all of the dishes and all the stuff because I want my tabernacle and my temple to be gorgeously beautiful. He is knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting in carving wood and to make all manner of artistic workmanship. This guy's a savant. Who can do all that kind of stuff all at the same time? I mean, there's jewel cutters and there's woodworkers, but usually not the same guy. That's pretty amazing. He has also put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver, the designer, the tapestry maker, in blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen of the weaver of those who design artistic works. Back in Exodus 31, verse 6, he says, God says, I put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artists that they may make all that I have commanded you. God's description of David is that he was filled with the Spirit of God, and one of the results is he's skillful in playing music. God makes it very clear that artistic talent, whether that's any sort of hands-on art or music or writing or whatever it is that you do that's creative, that is the Spirit of God operating in you. Whatever you do to, to make your life or the people around you more beautiful, that is the Spirit of God. Hello? We need beauty and God says I am beautiful and God says I've put my spirit in you and you're going to make beautiful things so they built the tabernacle all these the best artists that God and Moses could find built the tabernacle and then David comes along a couple hundred years later he wants to build the temple which is the the stone house of God and the tabernacle was a tent David says it's not fair that I live in a palace but God lives in a tent so we're going to make this extravagantly fancy house and God says no you're not going to do it your son is going to do it Solomon builds the temple out of stone and cedar wood and then the entire building from top to bottom inside and out is plated in gold and they're uh, the fanciest things ever carved into the wood and the gold pomegranates and flowers and and all kinds of different things and then there's statues outside and bronze calves with a big um, C on top of it. All these are pictures of things with Jesus and it's way too much to go into. I'm just talking about the artistry 
the skill that went into the beauty that was put into the, ta- to the temple of God. They built this temple super fancy. It was literally gold-plated from top to bottom, inside and out. All the walls, the ceilings, everything was gold-plated. That's a fancy place. And then Jesus comes along, a thousand years later, and we, enter, we leave the Old Testament behind and we enter into the New Testament, what we call the church age. And over time, as the church becomes less illegal and more legal and grants and gains over multiple centuries, the church gets property and political freedoms and, and amasses some wealth, the church begins to build, the Catholic medieval church begins to build really fancy church buildings. I was in England and Ireland 23 years ago, studied for a semester in London, studying theater and music and literature, and it was one of the best times of my life. I didn't get to go to Paris or Rome, but I've been in London and Dublin and and Edinburgh and several other places and seen some, some of these cathedrals. This is Westminster Abbey. It's the home church in, in London, and I, visit, I don't even know how many cathedrals I visited. When I went to these churches, here's the inside of Westminster Cathedral. When I went in, me being raised as a good, poor, Protestant country boy in a small country church, I judged these churches. I judged the Catholic Church for building it, for spending all that money. I judged it as being excessive and extravagant. I judged that the people who went here are not really coming to worship. This is just a tourist attraction now with all these Japanese and American tourists coming around, taking pictures of it. It's not really a holy place anymore. And really, I thought, what a waste of money. The church doesn't need to be this fancy. We could use that money for real ministry. And it did not dawn on me that somebody else in the New Testament said that very same thing, and I do not want to be on his team. But I did. I was critical and judgmental in my heart. Actually, my least favorite part of the trip was visiting these cathedrals. It got boring because you saw so many of them, and they're all sort of similar, and they're all just overwhelmingly extravagant. It never entered my mind when I judged, well, they could have spent this money to help the poor. It never entered my mind that, that hundreds, possibly even thousands of men were employed building these things, and their families had a livelihood. That thing was made by hand with a hammer and a chisel, ropes and timber and horses. Come on, our forefathers were studs. There ain't nobody alive today that could build that. It's amazing artistry. It is skill like we do not possess in the modern world. And yeah, there was excesses and huge problems in the medieval Catholic Church, which we have talked about in the last couple months. But that doesn't mean it was all wrong. I went in here, and this is the inside of the building. And and I looked at all this, and I thought, what a bunch of empty trappings. And possibly it is. But absolutely everything means something. In In an age where literally almost no one could read... The windows told the Bible stories. The stained glass windows are all Bible stories. And every arch and every number of anything means something. There's always 12 of this and 12 of that and for the apostles and you know, all this stuff. And uh, here is the, 
ceiling of Westminster Abbey so that when the worshiper looks up while singing or praying, you're looking at a cross. The building from the roof, from the top, is, is shaped like a cross. And, and that's amazing artistry and thought and skill and intentional beauty for the glory of God. It opened 1,000 years ago. It's been there for a thousand years, and I realize there it may be some real emptiness in it now, but when it was built, it was built in the context of this is what a church is. And it does speak to their financial priorities compared to ours. This is a hallway in either Oxford or Cambridge University. I don't know which one. That is hand-built. I'm talking about this morning, our forebears, their understanding that beauty was a necessity. That beauty was important enough that a stonemason would spend his entire life making that. In a hallway! It is a hallway! And they thought it was important enough that the hallway be that beautiful. I'm talking, we live in an ugly world. That hallway is two times older than our country. That's putting some value on beauty. Because you can build a hallway a heck of a lot plainer than that. And who cares? Well, they did. And I'm telling you this morning, they knew something we don't. They valued some things that we don't. We've lost the importance of beauty in our own lives and our beauty toward God. God's put a necessity for beauty in us. Even the tiny country town churches all over England and Scotland and Ireland where I was, the tiny little churches, that are, there are thousands of them. They have style. They have a style. It's not a cathedral. But that thing is three times older than our country. And there it is, standing, and it's glorious. It's beautiful. You don't see tourists coming to this church building. <laughs> For any architectural reason. There's another one. I don't know, you know how old that is or where it is, but it's, it's ancient. And somebody put a lot of care into building it and not just building it, but to making it beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't show up very well. That's a, that's a, it's called a stave church in Norway. It's built in the 1100s out of wood. And it's still there. In Norway, where it's cold and rainy all the time. This is just a plain Lutheran church in Northern Europe. The Lutherans, when they rebelled against the Catholics, they went completely the other way. They were intentionally plain and simple in an anti-Catholic reaction against cathedrals. We're not going to blow our money on that stuff. We're going to keep it simple and uh, not tax people to build these gigantic extravagant buildings but even that has architectural beauty to it there's a style there that the northern europeans had that came to america american churches have never been fancy some of that is protestant frugality some of that is an anti-catholic bias some of it is a frontier mindset that we're moving westward very quickly we need to build things very quickly all buildings were built really super quick and cheap but our forefathers and our ancient civilizations built the pyramids and the Parthenon 
the Taj Mahal, and this is when in America we build industrial complexes. <laughs> we have hundreds of trillions of dollars, more money than any ancient king would ever dream to have existed, and that's what we build with it. I'm not putting that down at all. We need this. This is where, this is where the economic money comes from. This is where our paychecks come from. But, but we could build anything we want. And what do we build? It's wider highways. We could build anything we want. We could build the pyramids a thousand times over. Except that we can't figure out how to make cranes big enough to build them. And they built them by rope and slaves' backs. We could build anything we want. And we build millions of these things. Metal boxes to park our trucks and our stuff in. I don't think millions is an an exaggeration. They are everywhere, all over America. Even 120 years ago, our warehouses had some architectural style. That roof line there and the different colors of stone have no structural purpose. It's just to make it pretty. Right? That's a 120-year-old building. And there are lots of downtown city areas that have these type of buildings. You've seen them before. There's thousands or maybe millions of those. That top of that roof line has no purpose other than some artist stonemason took the time to do it. To make the building visually appealing. But not us. We just fill the world with boxes. We live in such an ugly world for so many reasons our music, our culture, our relationships, and our buildings. They're just, this is what we do because we're Americans. We want it fast and cheap and utilitarian. Who gives a darn about what it looks like? We want to make money. I'm not saying necessarily that any of that's bad. It's just our culture. It just is. So, so American churches, back to, we're talking about beauty and worship here. American churches have always been plain. That's the little country church outside of Embler. Now, this is ubiquitous. There are thousands of those, or there were, uh, all over America. These little, tiny, country town churches that were built all over, and people gathered to worship in them. They've always been, American churches have always been plain and simple. Partly because of frontier mentality, partly because of frugality, just Americans being cheap. Part of it is because we're on the move all the time. But really, it's because we're cheap. Because now we go to church in sheds. This is the number one style of church architecture in America, is a metal building. That's a really bad example of one, but you can find those all over Northeast Oregon. They're there. That's a really bad example, but we go to church in the same buildings we park our trucks in. You can make them look nicer if you line them with stone and you put a covered entryway on it and so on, but... It does show, we can go to church in a shed. It's great, it's fine. But it does show America's financial priorities that our businesses are big and our homes are big, but our churches are plain. If Jesus doesn't deserve beauty and wealth and glory, then who does? Jeff Bezos? President Trump? I'm not saying they can't spend what they've earned, but when Jesus shows up, their nose is going to be in the dirt right next to mine. If Jesus doesn't deserve wealth and glory and beauty, then nobody does. I'm not at all saying our church should have gold-plated bathroom faucets. No, 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 no. But 
We need beauty. And church ought to be a refuge of beauty. And our ancestors knew that. Both in ancient Israel and in the church age. We used to know that. That the church was supposed to be a place to escape the darkness and ugliness of the world. But it's likely that your house is better decorated than this building. And I say that to your shame. Even those little white churches of the American frontier and every little country town had a little bit of charm. So what we are seeing, because of an American, uh, what would be the word? We don't care too much about beauty. We like spectacle and we like show and we like adrenaline buzz, but beauty is not all that interesting and it certainly isn't worth any money. What we're experiencing now in the American Christian Protestant church is that young adults by the thousands, I don't know how large of an extent this is, but it's big enough that it's talked about all over on my pastor blogs and magazines and and the circles that I run in is that we have young adults leaving Baptist and charismatic churches to go to high church, liturgical churches where the priest wears robes and there's stained glass and and they're looking for tradition. They're looking for beauty. They're look, their families are so broken. Their world is so broken. They haven't even lived in the same place all their life and known the same people. They want something that's 2,000 years old. They want something that's beauty, that's beautiful and calming and, and orderly. And I want a creed that was written 1,800 years ago that has stood the test of time. I want to feel that I'm a part of something. Not that I'm just doing church like a committee meeting. They they really are um, revolting against the modern world. Modern Christian 20-something-year-old girls choosing to go to a church where they have to wear a head covering because they find peace in that. It means something beautiful to them. Where there's candles and sung prayers And I don't want to go to a church where there's five songs and a sermon and we dismiss. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the exact opposite problem that the priests in the Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church and Lutheran pastors are saying, we're losing all of our young adults to the charismatic churches. They're leaving in droves because they find this empty and meaningless and they want to go where they're taught the word of God and where the songs are alive. And, tr- and that's a bunch of you. That's why you're here. You left the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or the Episcopal Church. And I don't want to sing the same thing every Sunday. I don't want candles. I want to hear what God's Word says. I don't want to hear a priest say the same Mass every Sunday. I want to hear, I want to be taught the Word of God. So what's the problem? Well, we can make anything into an idol. We have this group over here that makes their traditions and their beauty and their history an idol. And we have this group over here that makes the truth of the word of God something to beat somebody with and something to be arrogant against the other church with. And we make anything an idol, it dies. Anything can become an idol. Beauty or truth or tradition or revival. All of those things have to exist together in our heart by faith. If I choose that I want to go to a church that has beautiful liturgy and candles and stained glass and an old stone building, 
If I choose beauty at the expense of truth, then I've made it into an idol and I get empty ritual. But if I choose to go to a church that just hammers people with the word of God, but there isn't any beauty about it, I've made that into an idol. You you can go to plenty of churches that'll bash the Catholics and the Coptics and the Orthodox and the Episcopals all day long. Well, that's just empty tradition and ritual and we've got the Holy Spirit. Seriously, you can make, there are Christians who can make tradition and ritual an idol, but then there are other Christians that make tradition and ritual a dirty word. Well, we've got revival. Well, you cannot reject 2,000 years of Christianity and say that because I went to such and such school, now I know what Christianity really is. No, you are 2,000 years old. And that's the Christianity that conquered the world. Not IHOP and Bethel. Hello? It's Orthodox Christianity and Catholic Christianity that took the world by storm, not Azusa Street. I realized that that happened again with Azusa Street. I get that. And it's happening again with Bethel. But that's not a new revelation of what Christianity is. And it better not be used to judge anybody else. We have to hold all of that by faith. Because the beauty of the Lord is in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can make a prison cell with cockroaches and rats beautiful if the heart of the man who's in it is fully given over to Jesus. It, that prison cell in Siberia or northern China is full of the Holy Spirit glory of God. The Holy Spirit can make a stick and mud hut in the bush of Africa glow with the glory of God if the people who are worshiping there are full of love and faith for God. And the Holy Spirit of God can fill Westminster Abbey with the glory of God if the people who are worshiping there, their hearts are fully given over to God. No one may judge anyone else if their hearts are really fully given over to God. You can't get more different than the Mennonites or the Orthodox or the KJV-only Baptists. Whatever is done in real faith is real faith. Whatever is done out of routine is empty. Whatever is done out of pride is from hell. Let's go back to Psalm 90, 17. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. God's beauty is upon us, not our building. Hello? Our building needs to be beautiful. You need to invest in it. But that's not the point. The point is the beauty of the Lord is supposed to be on us, right? It's the gospel that makes people beautiful. Yeah, next one. We've already read these before. Psalm 29, 2. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It's holiness that makes us beautiful, not the trappings of our surroundings. Holiness makes us beautiful. Next one. Psalm 144, 12. May our sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. Thank you, Kale, for prophesying that over our girls years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, Kale said that about our daughters. May our daughters be graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. Again, what is a pillar? It is a rock-solid stone that cannot be moved, the strength of righteousness and the truth, but they are gorgeously beautiful while they do it. And I don't mean your hair and your makeup and your clothes. Yeah? Hello? 
Uh-huh. Because, First Peter, next one, First Peter 3, 4 says, The incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Of course, that applies to all of us, but that is a verse specifically written to women. Your beauty is not in your hair and your clothes. It is in a gentle and quiet spirit. God's definition of what a carved pillar that beautifies a palace, God's definition of what that looks like is not that you went to the salon yesterday. It is that you went to the word of God and the Holy Spirit yesterday. You went to the Holy Spirit salon. (laughs) Try going there sometime. See how you come out looking. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. May your daughters be carved pillars, rock solidly righteous, immovable in the truth, supporting the church. But they look gorgeous while they're doing it because wisdom always applies art to make truth look beautiful. Those those pillars that wisdom is carving out for her temple is you. It's your heart. God is not just teaching you the truth. He is making you beautiful while he does it. Amen. So the reason I'm doing this this morning is because God told me that 2008 is going to be a year of beauty. It's going to be a beautiful year. God's definition of beauty. God's definition of beauty. Humility, honor, peace, unity, faith, holiness, purity. We sang earlier, this is Jesus in his glory. As he was hanging on the cross. God's definition of beauty. God's most. His strongest attraction to you. Is when you are serving. When you are sacrificing. When you are loving. Even when you're suffering. There is nothing more beautiful. Than a Christian who responds with true graciousness. When they're truly suffering. It is knockout gorgeous. To see somebody's heart return blessing. When they're getting cursed when it's really, truly hard or painful, and they're being truly gracious. It's gorgeous. God says this will be a year of beauty. Some things are going to be put in order that are out of order. Some things are going to be renewed and redecorated. On a surface level, DJ Fox is in beginning the process. We're going to replace every light fixture in the entire building because these are old power units, and OTEC has a rebate system we're going to take that opportunity to get rid of industrial lighting and make it look a little prettier in here in this room in the lobby uh, what's pretty in Legrand is different than what's Paris okay we're not going full Westminster Abbey in here all right okay I'm voting for antler chandelier in the lobby but I'm getting voted down by all, by the ladies I'm I'm, t- I'm talking to it nope nope no antlers come on it's the perfect church for an antler chandelier oh well Truly, uh, 20 years ago, this carpet was replaced for Mike and Kathleen's wedding because we had orange shag carpet in here before that, and it is 20-year carpet, and you can see back here, it's starting to come apart, and we're, I, hope, I really hope, we elders have already had two conversations about it, I really hope we can um, replace the carpet in the building and, and uh, not have blue carpet with red chairs anymore, praise God. It is the Holy Spirit that makes a church beautiful. If the Spirit is not present, it doesn't matter how pretty the room is. But a pretty room will sure help. In this, I'm serious. I'm serious. In the same way that good music makes it easier to enter the presence. Come on. Come on. The cathedrals were built to bring people into the presence of God. And you have been to places where the music talent is subpar. 
and where the, obviously the guy on guitar is doing his best. But he, when you're in a rapturous moment and there's all of us like, on the guitar, you're, it's lost. Right? You're out of the presence. The drummer misses a beat and stumbles. And of course, everybody does it and nobody's perfect. But when it's, when it's done, it's, when it's not done the best it can be done, it's really hard to enter the presence. Well, that's not just true with music. It's true with visual aesthetics around us. They bring us into the presence of God. It is healing. It is a refuge. It is therapeutic to be in a beautiful room. So we're not going full Notre Dame here. Not by a long shot. Okay. Not at all. Okay. But we're going to, um, we're going to, we got to replace the lights anyway. We're going to try to decorate it up a little bit. Now we've got to buy new carpet anyway. We're going to buy some quality stuff. I, and of course that's not, I, I don't think that's exactly what the Lord means when he says 2018 will be a year of beauty, but it includes that. It does. Beauty is power. Beauty is healing. Beauty brings life because the truth is beautiful and the gospel makes you beautiful. That makes the church beautiful. Amen. Lord, we love you and we bless you. We praise your holy name. We praise your beautiful name, the name of Jesus. There is no more beautiful name. No more beautiful man, no more beautiful king, no more beautiful words, no more beautiful truth than who you are. Thank you for making our hearts your home. Thank you for making our lives beautiful, for setting us free from all of the ugliness and darkness that we used to live in, from what was around us, Lord. You've placed us in bright, beautiful setting. But for those that are not in beautiful situations, I pray that your light and glory would arise and shine out of them, that those who are in darkness would see your great light. I ask for the beauty of the Lord on every face and in every heart and out of every mouth right now. Bless each person here, grace and peace. May your beauty shine in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.